Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Mm, I'm picking up some insincerity. Y'all come on in and find you a seat. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. This is our uh, second week uh, after our July break, and so we're excited to have you guys with us. But let's begin with a little prayer, and then we'll kind of jump into it. I'm looking around the room. I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm going to pray, and we're going to begin. Father, we love you. We love that you love us. We're so grateful to you for being our God, for allowing us to be, our, be your people. And uh, we pray that as we consider you and consider your word and consider how your grace manifests itself to us in this world, Lord, we pray you'll be near to us. Help us to think correctly about you and about your word that we might better understand you, that we might better love you, and therefore we might better worship you. So be near to us. We need you. We love you. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. So this morning, if you can see on this board with this very old dry erase marker that you can barely read, uh, it says common grace. We're talking about common grace this morning. And as Zach pointed out this morning while we were praying, we were talking about common grace with an uncommon teacher. Real funny. That's what I thought. So uh, my name's Carl. I'm one of the ministers here on staff. My uh, responsibilities are family. So I'm a family minister. I'm responsible for uh, children from birth up to age 18 and their families. So that's kind of my purview. That's where I focus my energy and my prayer and my time. Uh, And occasionally you'll see me in here and occasionally you will see me in the sanctuary uh, uh, preaching. Uh, But this morning we're going to be talking about common grace. And so if you have not already, there are notes in the back if you want to follow along or have a, thing, have a place to write things down, you may grab one of those. Uh, but we're going to be kind of looking at four questions this morning. We're going to be looking at what is common grace. Uh, we're going to be looking at where do we see common grace. And then we're going to ask the question, why does God give it? Why does God give common grace uh, to the people of the world? And then we're going to uh, look at how we should respond. How should a believer respond to the reality of common grace? So question number one, what is it? What is common grace? So here's the definition we're going to use. Uh, The definition of this term is the manifestation of God's grace by which he gives blessings to people that are not part of salvation. Uh, And now I'm realizing this might be better worded slightly differently. The manifestation of God's grace by which he gives blessings that are not part of salvation to people. Okay, so this is the idea that God, yeah, I just reworded it for you. Good luck with that. Get your pen, write that down. Okay, so the, uh, the idea here is that we're talking about the grace of God as it manifests in the world to all of his image bearers. So common grace is something that's given to all. It is not only for believers. The believer and the unbeliever alike receive this grace from God. So it has two words, common, which is what we're using to refer to everyone, not just believers, and then the word grace which for for believers, we oftentimes will associate this word only with salvation. We'll think in our minds, grace only means to be saved, this kind of unmerited favor, or even uh, here at Parkway, we've talked about how it's demerited favor, the idea that God has given favor to the elect, those that he's chosen in order to redeem them and save them. That's typically what we think of when we use the word grace. But grace means different things in different contexts. It always means the favor and blessing and kindness of God. And when you're talking about salvation, it certainly refers to this favor that's given so that one might be saved. But in this context, this word grace is only referring to his blessing, to his kindness, to his mercy, to all of his image bearers. 
So it's not saving grace. Common grace cannot save. It does not save, okay? And so again, the, the definition we're using is the manifestation of God's grace by which he gives blessings to people that are not part of salvation. So number two, second question here, where do we see it? Where do we see the common grace of God play out? Uh, and I've listed several different kind of areas of life. There can be certainly more than this. You could break some of these down into smaller categories if you'd like. Uh, but we're going to look at just a few of these categories. The first one, we're going to look at the intellectual realm. God's common grace to all of his image bearers exists in the intellectual world. This idea that a person can have a mind that is clever enough, that is smart enough, that is discerning enough to be able to invent, to create, to think, to reason, to figure things out. This idea that there can be an intellectual capacity that is in and of itself a good thing and a blessing to the rest of culture and the rest of society and the rest of the world. And many of the people who have give, been given this grace, given this blessing, given this intellectual ability have been people that are unbelievers. Now, that's not to say they've, they've been mostly unbelievers or that they've all been unbelievers, but the idea that there are people who have been, had great contributions to the realm of intellectual uh, activity in the world uh, have been unbelievers is true. This idea, when we think of who the great thinkers are, when we list off those, those people as names that we think of like Socrates or Hume or Plato or Aristotle or Immanuel Kant, these kinds of people, these people are far from Christ. These people don't know and love Jesus. They aren't believers. And yet they have received the common grace of, a, a, of an, an incredible intellectual capacity that has been a good to the processes of thinking that we know of in the world. The idea that intellectualism is something that is a common grace from God. It is not reserved for his children, but it's something that he has blessed all of the people with. When we think of uh, great scientists, people like Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson or Stephen Hawking or Bill Nye. Did I say Bill Nye? I'm so sorry. That belongs in a different category over here. Uh, people that are entertainers and pretend to be like scientists. Okay. So you have people like philosophers, you have uh, scientists, you have doctors, lawyers, professors, people whose minds and their abilities and capacities have been a blessing and a boon to the world. And not because they're believers. They aren't. Some of them are. In fact, many of them are. We could list tons of believers in each of these categories as well. But the reason I'm pointing out the unbelievers is so that we can see and understand that the common grace of God is given to all of his image bearers, not just his children. Another place where the common grace of God in the realm of intellectualism can be seen is in the innate knowledge of God that everyone has. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 reads, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So in Romans chapter 1, Paul is telling us about the idea that in creation, in all that God has made, there is an innate knowledge and awareness of God. And this is his common grace to the people. It is God's grace to reveal himself in creation to those who are perishing, to those who do not love and trust in his son. Everyone has an awareness of God. Everyone knows enough of God to be separated and damned, not enough to be saved. But the common grace of God to reveal himself to the world is what we're wanting to see here. And so intelligence and reason and awareness of God are where we can kind of see the intellectual capacity uh, by which God's common grace is made manifest. Okay, number two, in the moral realm, 
right? So this is the idea of God kind of restraining evil and withholding his wrath, right? There is an inward awareness and a sense of right and wrong in all people, right? We all understand what is right and what is wrong to a certain degree, and we would call that conscience, right? The idea that I can know intrinsically in my own heart, apart from the Scriptures, apart from God, I can know that to kill someone else is wrong. There's something in me that says it's wrong to murder. There's something in me that says it's wrong to rape. There's something in me that says it's wrong to steal property that doesn't belong to me. And in every culture and every society around the world, for all of history, to some degree or another, there have been prohibitions against murder, against rape, against theft, and these kinds of things. There is this conscience conscience in the mind and the heart of a man and a woman that would say, I understand what is right and what is wrong. And this is God's grace to the people. This is one of the the ways by which he restrains evil. This is one of the ways by which he restrains what is wicked in the world. And people will often approve of moral standards and scriptures apart from the scriptures. This idea that they might say, it's going to be wrong and punishable in our country to murder in spite of the fact that we do not have hope in Christ, in spite of the fact that we do not understand the law, which is what the Scriptures teach us in Romans chapter 2, in verses 14 and 15, where it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, so Paul is saying for those Gentiles, people that are outside the covenant community, people that are not part of God's people, when they do the things that are right in the eyes of the law, It's because they understand it. And going on in verse 15 where he says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. So Paul is saying that there is this intrinsic awareness of right and wrong in the hearts of men that is apart from the law, is apart from the commands of God, is apart from salvation. There is an awareness of what God's expectations for moral behavior are. And this is God's common grace to the people. Number three, the creative world. So people have creative abilities. Not everybody, right? So this idea is that God's common grace is given in varying degrees and in different ways to different people, uh, but all in accordance with his will. So not everyone is an artist, but there are artists. That it is God's common grace to give the gift of creativity to some. So you have people who make paintings. You have painters who make these incredible images. And they, can, they make these things that you and I look at and we marvel at. And we say, this is beautiful. This is incredible. How did they do this? It's the common grace of God that there might be a level of creativity that we would look at and say, how beautiful is what God has made? How incredible is it, the gifts that God gives? Even the pigments and the brushes the canvases, the mediums that these artists use, even the invention and as we look through how those things have come to be innovated, how did they come up with a purple paint? How did they come up with a red paint? Like these ideas, all of these things are the, the common grace of God. Musicians, right, composers, people who write music for a hundred musicians who can sit on a stage and play different notes at different times in different rhythms, and to our ears it sounds beautiful. How is this possible? It's possible by the common grace of God. The idea is we don't deserve anything that's good, anything that is pleasurable, anything that is good, anything that uh, that is astounding to us is something we don't deserve. It is God's grace to us, His common grace that gives to us the ability to listen to music, 
Right? The idea that a songwriter can capture an experience or a feeling or an emotion in just a few lyrics and that we can empathize with that, we can understand that, we can enter into that, and we can enjoy it because of the common grace of God. Even the instruments themselves, as they've been developed and as they've had innovation so that they sound better than they did 100 years ago. Even music you don't like is an evidence of the common grace of God. Justin Bieber, Britney Spears, Flock of Seagulls, right? Lots of people don't like this stuff, but it is the common grace of God that it was able to be created. Photographers, people take an image that we would stand and stare at, and they're able to capture it on a piece of film in a way that gives you a similar sense of awe as you would have if you were standing in front of the object itself. Think of like uh, Ansel Adams, who took a bunch of black and white photographs of Yosemite National Park. Some of those photographs are incredible. But even the, even the creation of the camera, of film, of the ability to take an image and to put it onto a piece of paper, this is an incredible gift. This is God's common grace to us. Athletes. Now, it's a stretch to put athletes in the creative department, but bear with me, right? Think of your favorite athlete, how much faster they are, how much higher they can jump, how much better they are at the sport and understanding how to win, right? I always think of my favorite baseball player, Troy Aikman, and the career that he had. <laughs> Cooks, chefs, people that can take ingredients and combine them together with flavors that not only smell good, but they taste good and they feel good on the palate and they look good on a plate. This idea that that could happen is the common grace of God, that my heart might be filled with joy to watch Zach Lee eat wings that are hotter than any man should eat. That is a gift of God. Writers, poets, novelists, people that can create stories that elicit emotion and experience and nostalgia in the heart of a man or a woman. This is a gift of God. This is an evidence of his grace to us. People that make movies, right? They're this idea that you can create in an hour and a half a sense in which I can understand a story that takes place over the course of years. People that make games. Yes, nerdy board game players. I'm talking to you. You and me, let's do this. People that make board games are incredible. Their gift is a common grace of God that I might be able to sit with a few of you and enjoy playing a game that the rest of the people would find very, very frustrating. But the idea that even our ability to appreciate all these things, even our ability to look at that painting and say, that is beautiful, to look at that photograph and say, how incredible, to play that game and say, what a joy this is, even our ability to appreciate those things is God's grace to us. It is God's common grace to you and I that we might see the creative work of others and be inspired by it, be encouraged by it, find it to be a blessing. God gives his love and his goodness to all of his image bearers in different ways and to differing degrees and in accordance with his will. This is what God does. Number four, society. So in our societies, we find the common grace of God. In institutions and structures and organizations that exist, things like marriage and family, God instituted this most fundamental and basic building block of society in the garden, and yet it persists today. And it isn't just Christians that are getting married. 
Non-Christians, non-believers are getting married all the time. And they aren't doing it because they want to honor the thing that God has created. They aren't doing it because they see that it's supposed to be a reflection of Christ and his church. They aren't doing it because they want to be faithful, to be fruitful and multiply. They aren't doing it because they want uh, the sexual union to be in the context in which God says it's a blessing. They do it because something in them says marriage is good. Something in them recognizes marriage is somehow a benefit to me, to my society, to my culture, to my country. They understand that. And this is the common grace of God that they would understand. Unbelievers continue to have kids, and they don't do it because they want to be faithful to God's command to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. That's not their desire. But something in them recognizes that having children is a good thing. It is a blessing to them and to the culture and to the society. They see having children as a good thing. Government. God establishes government, leadership, headship in a a context of society and of culture, right? In Romans chapter 13, which we have not yet gotten to in the sanctuary, but we will, reads in verses 1 and 2, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So no matter what you think of our current government, no matter what you think of our past government, no matter what you think of our potential future government or of the governments of other nations, many of which are evil and wicked, God has placed them there. It is his common grace to place the leaders in the places where they are, in the countries that they are, for his glory and for our good, and to some degree, in in some context, for the restraint of evil. The government is given to bear the sword, is what the Scriptures would say, so that when we recognize as a culture and as a society that murder is wrong, that there is someone who will hold that standard up and mete out justice to those who who break it. Government is given as a gift of goodness uh, by God and a means of restraining evil. Education. No matter what you think about our public school system or what you think about uh, the way the university structure is in the United States, by and large, on the whole, those institutions have been a boon to our, our culture and our society. Education and its organization is a gift from God. It is a common grace of God that our culture and our society would say to educate children is a good thing, that it is a blessing, that it is somehow good for the people. This is the common grace of God. Even businesses and charities, the idea that you can have a device in your pocket that can give you access to basically all the world's information anytime you want it, that's an incredible thing. This idea that a business and a group of people with their creative abilities would get together and say, not only are we going to create this amazing device, but we're going to create a business structure in which it can be mass-produced, sold around the world for the good of all. Now, it can be for the detriment of all as well. But the idea here is that God's common grace to give us businesses so that commerce might take place, so that farming might improve, the ability to produce food and to decrease famine and hunger around the world, which is indeed what's happened. That doesn't mean it's gone. It's not eradicated. There is still hunger. There is still famine. But at the end of the day, the idea of business and commerce being a good thing or a gift of God's common grace to all of his image bearers. And all of these exist And all of them are, to some degree or another, a blessing, and they are a good to man. And this is God's grace to the world. Number five, the physical world, the physical realm. This is the thing we typically think of first, which is why I'm talking about it last. 
We typically would think, oh, well, how do you see Commons Grace? Oh, in the sunset, when I stand on Grand Canyon's edge and stare into the abyss. Yes, yes to those things. But there's more than that, right? There are indeed uh, kind of some basic truths that we would embrace, but I think it's helpful for us to look at more than that. So the first thing I want to say is life and health. The very fact that you and I are alive today, that we are breathing, that there's breath in our lungs, that we can sit and listen and reason and consider together, that in and of itself, the fact that you were able to get out of bed this morning is a gift of God's grace to you. We do not deserve life. We deserve death. We deserve eternal separation from God. We deserve to be destroyed because of our sin. And yet God relents. God withholds his wrath and gives us life and gives us breath. Now, not everyone experiences life and health to the same degree. There are those who deal with chronic pain. There are those who deal with terminal illness. There are those who deal with life-threatening illness. Those things aren't dismissible. Those things are realities. But to whatever degree we have life, to whatever degree we have health, it is a gift of God's grace to us. And then, yes, there's the beauty in the world. And there are indeed these easy and obvious ways, right? The colors of a sky as the sun kind of dips down below the horizon. The, the real genuine depth and vastness of the Grand Canyon is incredible. The power and the relentlessness of the ocean as waves come crashing onto the shore and we stand and stare at that in awe. The majesty and the glory of giant redwood trees in Northern California the nearly unfathomable distance between stars and planets and even the mysterious beauty of the moon as it kind of rises and sets overnight. These things are places that are easy for us to see and to point to and say, this is the common grace of God. It is God's grace to us that these beautiful things exist. But there's more. There's so much more that we often don't think of. And there are more subtle, simple ways that God has shown his grace to us. And I've got 14 that I'm going to share with you. So buckle up. <laughs> Have you ever sat by a fireplace or a campfire and just stared at it? Just look at a fire. Watch as it crackles, as it consumes the wood, little sparks that fly up into the air, the way its little tongue of flame kind of dances, the white hot coals as you stare and you just relax in the warmth of the fire and think. That is a gift of God's grace to us. The complexities and the beauty of like a spider web. You go out on your back porch early in the morning and there's a spider web up in the corner and you're like, I'm going to get rid of that spider. But before I do, look at that web. It's got little droplets of dew on it and the sun's shining through them and the spider's repairing the little spots that got broken overnight in the, in the breeze. The perfect symmetry of like a dandelion that your four-year-old picked out of the backyard and says, Mommy, Mommy, look. And it's this, it's this perfect symmetry, this almost globe of dandelion seeds. It's beautiful. And then they blow on it, and they float off, and you're thinking, I have to go to Lowe's and get some weed killer now. <laughs> but there's something innately beautiful about that dandelion. The soothing sound of rain on a window or on a rooftop as you get up in the morning and you sit at the table and you're drinking your first cup of coffee and you look out the window and watch puddles form. That's a gift of God's grace to us. We might enjoy that sound, that we might be soothed by the reality of the rain feeding all that God has created and that's growing outside. Laughter that you share with friends. When you get together and hang out, share a meal, go to a movie, play a board game, play another board game. This laughter, this enjoyment of relationship, that is a gift of grace 
That is God's grace to us. The satisfaction that you get from completing a job. You mow the yard and you look at it and you're like, man, it feels good. It's done. You complete a project at work. You get done with something that you needed to fix around the house. God has created us to work. And when we do the work and it's complete and we feel this sense of satisfaction, that is God's grace to us that we might do the very thing that we were created for. The feeling of taking a load of laundry out of the dryer while it's still warm. You're carrying it to wherever you're going to fold it, or maybe you're not going to fold it, right? And you carry it, and then you, and that, that warmth, that comfort, there's something good about that. That feeling is good, and anything good is of God, and it is His grace to us. The thrill of going over the first hill on a roller coaster. Some of you are like, that is not fun. That's okay. It doesn't have to be fun for everybody. Like that adrenaline, that excitement, that anticipation, those feelings are God's grace to us. That we might enjoy something like people constructing a giant tower and putting a car on it that you might sit in with this really weird buckle that doesn't seem like it'll actually hold you. And I struggle with some of those rides. Anyway, think of the very best meal that you've ever eaten. Or think of the meal that your mother used to cook all the time that's so nostalgic for you, and you have it again 20 years later. And that first bite, that is delicious. And your mind says, oh, how good. How exciting. I have so much memory. I have so much emotion. That is a gift of God's grace to you, that you might have that experience just from eating food. The pleasure of just staring at a painting, looking at all the brush strokes, Imagining how the artist picked out those colors that they weave together so beautifully in this particular image. Thinking of how they worked and how they prepared. That can be a gift of God's grace to you. The refreshment of drinking ice cold water after being outside in the heat. Man, we just, I do that all the time. We walk from the car to the house, I'm sweating. And I get a bottle of cold water, I'm like, that's amazing. But it's a gift of God's grace to me that I have it, that it's available to me, that I can enjoy it. That is His grace. The gentle coolness that you feel as you take a walk and you pass by a grove of trees and you get a little bit of shade for just a moment. You get a reprieve from the heat that feels good. That is a gift of grace. On and on and on and on we could go. You and I could sit in this room for hours and tell of God's grace in the simple and what feels like mundane details of your day. And I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to find a day or find a half a day to think together with your family, with your friends. Let's list out the myriad ways that God has shown his grace to me today. Because it isn't just look at that beautiful sunset. There were six trillion things that happened by his grace to you that day prior to that sunset. Okay, so we've talked about what common grace is. We talked about where we see it in the intellectual, the moral, the creative, the societal, the physical. Now let's talk about why it is. Why does God give common grace? I've got three here. I'm confident that there's more. I'm confident you could take these three and break them up into smaller bite-sized pieces. But let's just talk through these three because I think they're the most significant for us to be thinking of. The first is to save the elect. So God gives the common grace of life in order that the elect might be saved through his saving grace to draw them to repentance. 
So the idea here is that God has indeed made a way for salvation. He has provided the substitute. He has provided someone to take the wrath that is due to the elect. He has provided the spirit by which your heart can have the truth of God's word illuminated to you that you might understand and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then he provides a context for that salvation to take place. And the context is in this world with his common grace being given to all of his image bearers so that there might be this place in which you can hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, repent, and believe. It is his common grace to us that he might save the elect while he withholds and restrains evil, while he relents from pouring out his wrath. And this is good. This is God's grace to us. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is God's desire, is that there will be those who will come to repentance, those he has chosen, those he ha- whom he has elected. And the world in which he has poured out and continues to pour out his common grace to all of his image bearers is the context in which he saves those elect. Number two, God gives common grace to show his goodness and his mercy. And we've kind of touched on this quite a bit as we've talked through all of these things. God displays his goodness and mercy through all the things we've listed, and all of it is a restraining of his wrath and a postponement of his justice. The very fact that he is delaying the justice that is due to sinners is evidence of his goodness and mercy. The very fact that he allows the context by which the elect might come to faith and repentance and then do is his goodness and his mercy, and he desires us to see it and to know it. Which brings us to number three. God gives his common grace to show his glory, that we might glorify the name of God because of his goodness and mercy by saving the elect, by being gracious to all of his image bearers, All of the demonstrations of God's grace through life, through artistic abilities, through the beauty that we see in the world, through the intellectual abilities of people, all of these activities of men where God's common grace is given and seen, these all point to the glory of God. When I see that painting, I ought not to say, man, Monet was an incredible painter, although I can say that, but I should go further and say God is a good and gracious God that he might give Monet the ability to make that painting that I can now look at and enjoy. When I see that spider web, I ought not to only say, I need to get rid of that spider. I need to also say, what a gift. What a gift to me for me to see the beauty of that right before I destroy it with a broom. I ain't touching that thing. The idea here is that God's glory should be pointed to in all of these things. If I experience the common grace of God and I do not point it to where it should be pointed, if I do not give glory to the one who made it possible, but instead the glory falls short, I take the glory for myself, I give the glory to someone else, rather than giving glory where it belongs, and that's to God, then I'm missing the point. Okay, so to to recap these three, God gives his common grace to all of his image bearers that he might save the elect that he might show his goodness and his mercy, and that he might show his glory. Now then, how should we, as believers, how should we respond to this? Okay, I think I have five of these. How should we respond? Number one, we should continue 
to evangelize. We should continue to share the gospel. No matter how good someone appears to be, as we said in the beginning, the common grace of God does not save. It doesn't matter how much common grace they get. If someone were to come up with a cure for diabetes, if someone were to come up for a way, with a way to completely eradicate famine and hunger forever, that does not save them. They are still in need of the electing, saving grace of God. And we don't know who's been elected. And so our job is to share the gospel with those who are perishing. Number two, we should not doubt God's love or our salvation because of our circumstances. If we understand God's common grace correctly, then we will not fear when circumstances are bad. We will not worry about our salvation when things aren't going like we wish. The reality that God's common grace is not reserved for the believer but is given to all of his image bearers ought to be an encouragement to us. Our ability to see and recognize God's common grace in our lives is not an indication of whether or not we have received the special grace of salvation. So if I recognize as a believer that the common grace God, God gives me, so if God gives me the intellectual capacity to do a good job in a particular field, which then causes me to get a good job in that field, which then gives me a great paycheck, which then gives me the ability to pay for a mortgage and, and car rental and to feed and clothe and house and protect my family, and all of that is God's common grace to me, those things are not connected to my salvation. And if I recognize that that's true, if all of those things are taken from me, if I lose that job and that paycheck and I don't have that house and I don't have those cars and my family and I are destitute and struggling to find something to eat, then the common grace of God that has, seems to have been removed from me but hasn't is also not connected to my salvation. I cannot look at my circumstances and say God must love me or God must not love me based on what I experience. It isn't as though good things happen to believers and bad things don't because you're believers. The Scriptures say the contrary. The Scriptures teach us that suffering is coming, that we will suffer because we love and trust in Christ. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, "'Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter is telling us, don't be surprised when suffering comes. It is coming, and it's because you get to share in the sufferings of Christ in that moment. Your circumstances are not the indication of whether or not you belong to God, whether or not you have been adopted, whether or not you have been saved. God's common grace to us, if understood rightly, should be an encouragement to us so that when the suffering comes, that we continue to put our hope and trust in Christ, knowing that He has purchased salvation for us, and that is not a circumstantial thing. Difficult, painful circumstances, cancer, death, broken relationships, lost job, lost income, Peter tells us it's to be expected as believers in Christ, and that should be an encouragement to us. That when bad things come, when circumstances are difficult, it is still God's common grace to us that we have life and breath. It is still God's grace to us that we have not received judgment for our sin, that He is relenting, that He is withholding His wrath because of His love for us. Number three, 
We should not reject the good things that unbelievers do as evil. If an unbeliever does something good, we ought to embrace it as a result of the common grace of God. Should we stop driving cars because some guy named Henry Ford didn't love Jesus? No, I'm driving that car. Got that sweet air conditioning. It's going to get me where I'm going faster, more comfortably. Henry Ford did not love and trust in Christ, and he created the means and the systems by which uh, driving automobiles proliferated in our country. But we don't look at his salvation and say, well, everything he does must be evil because he's an unbeliever. No, the common grace of God is poured out for all of his image bearers. And so Henry Ford's good deeds, Henry Ford's uh, abilities, Henry Ford's ability uh, to think and to reason and to consider and to create are a blessing to us, and we should receive it as such. If Bill Nye were to come up with a cure for cancer, which he won't because we've established he is a fake scientist that is a terrible, terrible person. But let's pretend like he did. Let's pretend like he did invent a cure for cancer, right? If he does, and I have cancer, and I hear about this amazing cure, should I say, well, Bill Nye came up with it, I, re I refuse it? Or should I receive the gift of common grace to me through the innovation of this man who doesn't have any credentials or abilities? I really don't like him, I'm sorry. <laughs> Number four, we should love our enemies. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So Jesus is speaking of God's common grace and he's using it as a reason for you to love your enemies. He is saying, because God loves his enemies, because God pours out his grace upon all of his image bearers, that we should love our enemies, that we should love those who are enemies of God, because he does. Number five, we should be more thankful. We tend to separate out the good that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis from God, as if the good things that happen to us probably should have happened anyway. We super deserved them. Or it's just chance that good things happened instead of attributing what is good to God. All good should be attributed to God, and he should be worshiped and glorified in it. We don't deserve any of the good that happens, none of it. God is not this angry man in the clouds who's got his arms folded and is passing down laws and saying, if you're nice, I might save some of you. God is a gracious, loving God who gives good gifts to his children and pours out his grace upon all of creation. And he loves and he cares for his creation. His grace has constantly been poured out for the good of all of those who bear his image, believers and unbelievers alike. The scriptures are clear that there are going to be those who reject these ideas, who reject these common graces of God, and that they will speak against them. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 
1 through 4 or 5 or something like that says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. We are going to hear that the common grace of God should not be embraced. We're going to hear that the common grace of God should not be acknowledged. We're going to be taught that God doesn't deserve the glory for the good things that happen. And this is false. So a few final thoughts here as we kind of wrap up. When we realize what common grace means, when we recognize it and embrace that everything good that happens to us is a gift from God and an evidence of His grace to us, when we see these things as true, we will begin to recognize that God desires for you and I to have a good time. He desires for us to enjoy. He wants us to see the beautiful painting and enjoy it. He wants us to laugh with our friends and have a good time. God wants us to have fun. Now, if we pursue fun at the exclusion of all else, like anything else, if we lift up one thing to the exclusion of everything else, it's an idol and it's sin. So if we're only in the pursuit of fun, yes, that's sin. But fun is not sin. Fun is from God. He has given us ability to enjoy, and he wants us to enjoy. You can enjoy a movie to the glory of God. You can enjoy a good book to the glory of God. You can listen to non-worship music to the glory of God. Not all of it. There is music. There are books. There are movies that hold up and, and make light of and glorify sin, and those things should not be reveled in. But there are good movies. There are good books. There is good music out there. And those things can be enjoyed and should be enjoyed to the glory of God. It is His common grace that has made it possible. You can play a sport to the glory of God. You can enjoy a glass of wine to the glory of God. And we should enjoy what God has given to us by His grace. When we do things that are not sinful, anything we do, anything we say, anything we participate that isn't sinful should be done to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He desires us to enjoy this creation. This broken, fractured creation can be enjoyed. The idea that I can go through my day and have a million places where I'm encouraged, where I find pleasure, where I find joy, where I'm excited, where I find love, where I find relationship, where I find community. The fact that I can go through that day in this broken, sinful world is evidence that there's something so much greater coming. And so he desires us to enjoy what he has given, to enjoy the grace that he gives in anticipation of something coming that's better. Let's pray, and then we'll have old Zachary T. Lee come on up here and answer some Q&A. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your love and your mercy, your goodness to us, your grace to us. And we ask that you be near. We ask that as we consider these things, uh, as we kind of mold them over in our hearts, that, Lord, that you might encourage us, that we might see uh, this is good. This is an encouraging word from you, that you love your creation, that you love those that bear your image. 
even those that are your enemies, that you give grace to them. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to see this rightly, that it would cause us to worship you uh, more rightly. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.